With that, let's jump into our message. We're going to be in Luke chapter 14 today, if you want to begin turning there. We're in our main message series on the life of Jesus going through all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in chronological order because we want to understand the Jesus of the Bible for ourselves. Jesus appears all over the place in pop culture. Jesus is even a prophet in Islam and in several other religions. But who is the Jesus of the Bible in his own words? That's what we want to know. And last week, Jesus answered the question, are only a few people going to be saved? And then joined a group of Pharisees and religious leaders for lunch after church on the Sabbath, which is a Saturday. And Jesus had some very harsh words for these leaders who thought they were saved, but in reality had no relationship with God whatsoever. And we talked about the importance of getting our recognition in life from God rather than other people. And I don't know if you thought about it at all over the past week, but it is a challenging, challenging topic. I told everyone, I said, that was much easier for me to teach on than it is for me to even apply in my own life. It's a challenging thing to actually be satisfied by the recognition you receive from the Lord rather than people. This week, Jesus isn't done. And he's going to keep talking with these leaders, a crowd of people, and us about what it means to be a disciple. Instead of just keeping it abstract and open to our own interpretations, Jesus is going to get very specific about how we need to be prepared to live if we're going to be his disciple. And we'll find that the text seems to point out there are two different types of Christians. There are believers and there are disciples. And we're going to wrestle with this tension and we're going to wrestle with this question in today's text. You know, our culture has a very hard time with the reality that love tells the truth. Because our culture has a hard time with truth, period. Even in the church, there can be this unspoken rule when it comes to each of our walk with Jesus that says, you know, we're all on our own journey and me being a disciple of Jesus may look different to you being a disciple of Jesus. I'm okay, you're okay, let's get together and feel all right. That's Marley, by the way. What's important is that we're all valid in our own individual expression of the faith. And I think we gravitate towards that here in Canada even more than probably anywhere else in the world, right? It sounds nice, but the problem is Jesus didn't give us the ability to define for ourselves what it means to be his disciple. In fact, right here in Luke 14, Jesus is going to be very specific about what it means to be his disciple so that we're not confused. And we've talked about this before. When you don't tell someone the truth, when you know it's what they really need, that's not being considerate. That's not being sensitive or kind. It's really just doing what's easiest for us because we don't want to deal with the fallout of telling them something they don't want to hear. But love tells the truth, no matter the cost. And in today's study, Jesus is going to tell the truth, and it's going to be heavy. It's going to be hard to hear for some of us, but it's going to be the truth. And Jesus is only sharing this because he loves you and he loves me. And my prayer this morning is that we would always be people who would rather hear the truth, especially when it has the potential to affect our eternity. So I'm going to trust that you want the truth and you can handle the truth. That's a few good men reference if you missed that. So let's begin by reminding ourselves what Jesus has just said in verse 11. This is where we ended last week. Verse 11 says, For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. 
These religious leaders were infamous for doing their good deeds as publicly as possible in view of as many people as possible so that they would be thought highly spiritual and basically get their props, get their kudos from those who saw them doing good. And Jesus has just explained to them that in the kingdom of heaven, if you want to be great, you need to be the servant of all. You need to look for recognition in heaven rather than on the earth. So Jesus provides an example of the kind of thing that counts for a lot in heaven but may not get you a lot of recognition on earth. Here's the example he gives. Verse 12, then he also said to him who invited him, when you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. The point Jesus is making is, hey, when you do something nice for people who can repay you and most likely will, it doesn't really count as great kindness. When you only socialize and extend hospitality to people who have the potential to do something for you, that's not really great kindness. You're simply being a good host to someone who will probably return the favor. It's reciprocal, as opposed to this, verse 13. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, that means the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Here's what he's saying. He's saying extend hospitality to others so that you can bless them, so that you can pour into them rather than inviting them over so that you can try and get something from them or get them indebted to you. Jesus is talking about those who are gonna cost you something. Let's not invite him over. He's dealing with some money issues right now and I really don't wanna listen to that over lunch. Let's not invite her. She's got some trouble in her marriage right now, and I don't want to get dragged into that. When you make it your goal to bless others, to pour into others, to show kindness to others who may have nothing to offer you at that moment, you're showing great kindness because you're doing it without the expectation of them being able to repay you, choosing instead to be repaid in heaven. And this would have been a crazy idea to these religious leaders because they were used to thinking along the lines of, you know, if a man does something good and no one's around to see it, does it matter? That was their approach to kindness. And Jesus is saying, well, your heavenly Father sees you. That's why it matters. That's the point. And this is good for us to remember because what Jesus teaches here and other places in the Gospels is that when another person repays us for our kindness, We've pretty much received our reward. We've received our reward here on earth. The scales are balanced. But when a person doesn't appreciate the good we've done for them, when there's nobody to see the work we've done for somebody that can't pay us back, when we give knowing that nobody's gonna give back to us, our heavenly Father sees us and considers us owed a debt. And the glorious news for us is that when we're not repaid in this life, the Lord will repay us in his kingdom For as Matthew Henry said, the Lord will be no man's debtor. He'll not be in debt to anyone. So make a note of this. It's always better to be rewarded by God than by man. It's always better to be rewarded by God than by man. And let me just say this practically. We're going to talk about it more in a little bit. But I understand that none of us can do this all the time. Study the life of Jesus. Even Jesus, the most gracious, kind person who ever lived, didn't spend every day eating with people that nobody else wanted to hang out with. Jesus himself took breaks from people, and do you know what he did? He went and hung out with the people he liked. 
the people where it wasn't draining on him all the time. Jesus gave, 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 but then guess what? Then he went away for a week to Bethany to hang out with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, his friends, just to recharge because nobody can hang out all the time with people who you're giving to, whether it's emotionally or physically, spiritually, anyway. Can't do that all the time. You need to find a balance. And so we understand that and we see that modeled in the life of Christ. I'm talking about being open to spending some time pouring some way into people who maybe aren't going to directly benefit you, at least in your view and in your opinion. But I understand nobody can do that all the time. Verse 15, it says, now when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, so he said to Jesus, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And I believe this is a moment here that's orchestrated by the Holy Spirit because the word bread is literally the word dinner. And Jesus is now going to turn and address the man who said this in a way that's gonna show Jesus is confirming what this man has said as being true. In other words, Jesus is saying, yes, you get it. That's what I'm talking about. Not only is Jesus going to affirm this man is correct, but when you realize the man is responding to Jesus by actually saying, blessed is he who shall eat dinner in the kingdom of God, you might find your mind tracking over to Revelation 19.9. I put it on your outline where an angel tells John the apostle, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. At the end of the great tribulation, at the end of that seven-year period following the rapture, before the thousand-year millennial reign of Jesus on the earth, John is told to write about this event called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. It's a celebration of Jesus and his church being united and being joined together in eternity. And as the Holy Spirit leads us to Revelation 19.9, we're given a massive clue that there's a second layer, a deeper layer to everything Jesus is talking about here in Luke 14. If these men make it to that marriage supper, they're not going to be the ones in the place of honor. If they make it to this marriage supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven, they're gonna be shocked to find those there whom they considered poor, lame, crippled, and blind. And that second layer of meaning is present as Jesus continues in verse 16. Then he, Jesus, said to him, the man, a certain man gave a great supper and invited many. This certain man is our heavenly father and the great supper is the marriage supper of the lamb. And sent his servant, we'll find his servant is none other than his son, Jesus himself. Sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, underline invited, the ones who were invited at this time were the Jews, Israel, God's chosen people. Jesus was sent to them first and he told his disciples this explicitly in Matthew 15, 24 and other places. And Jesus told them, come for all things are now ready. Verse 18, but they all with one accord began to make excuses, underline excuses. The first said to him, I've brought a piece of ground and I must go see it. I ask you to have me excused. Really? You bought a piece of property that you never even looked at in the age before photos and the internet? You see, nobody bought a piece of property without looking at it in that time. And Jesus is using this man as an example of someone who's clearly looking for an excuse. And the great tragedy, the application for us is that God has blessed this man with wealth and with the ability to buy land. But now that same wealth has become 
a barrier between God and this man. That's why the Bible doesn't say money is evil. The Bible says the love of money is evil when it becomes a barrier rather than a blessing. We need to watch out the same thing doesn't happen to us. Oh, you know, I'd, I'd love to be with other believers, but I'm, I need to take a couple of months off. I gotta remodel my house. I'm working on a boat. Something like that. Don't let a blessing turn into a barrier. Verse 19, and another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to test them. Gonna test his new Maserati. I ask you to have me excused. If you owned five yoke of oxen, you were basically a multi-millionaire. A multi-millionaire. So this would be like a multi-millionaire in our context saying, you know, uh, I just bought a new weed eater and I need to go test it out. That's why I can't come. And everyone would have sort of rolled their eyes because if you were this wealthy, you had people who had people who could do that for you. You did not need to go home and test your oxen. You weren't the one driving your oxen around. Somebody was doing that for you. It's another lame excuse. So this guy's working on his business, his career, his empire, and he's saying, you know, when that's all taken care of, when my career, my professional life has reached a certain point, then I'll have time. Then I'll be able to accept your invitation. And this happens to us too. We love to fool ourselves, don't we, by saying, you know, it's just for a season. It's just for a season. Verse 20, still another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. I think that one's hilarious. He has no other reason other than I've got a wife. And this one might be valid because I've seen an incredible amount, and I'll just be honest, this drives me out of my mind. Young people, no kids, Guys home by six o'clock every night. They spend every night together, every weekend together, and the wife's viewpoint is still, we never spend any time together. I can't come to church. We just need some us time. I'm kidding, of course, but not really. This guy is supposed to be the leader of his family, and instead his excuse is, you know, I'm whipped. That's the situation. I have a wife. You know how it is. That's a lame excuse. And we see this all the time in our own lives too, in different ways, our relationships become an excuse to ignore our relationship with God. I see couples who will say, you know, we do, we just need some us time right now. As though it's not true that a strong relationship with God is the very best thing you can do for every other relationship you have. It's the one relationship that benefits every other relationship. Husbands, you want your wife having a strong relationship with the Lord. You need Jesus speaking grace into her life for you. Wives, you want your husband having a strong relationship with the Lord. You want your kids having a strong relationship with the Lord. It's the best thing for every relationship. So the picture Jesus is painting is a person who won't accept his invitation unless they have the approval of someone they're in a relationship with. And we're going to find that being a disciple of Jesus means being willing to follow him regardless of who does or who does not approve. Verse 21, so that servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry, remember the master of the house is God the Father, said to his servant, Jesus, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. In simple terms, Jesus is saying that because his people, the Jews, wouldn't respond to their invitation, the Father has told the Son to extend the invitation to the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. A reference, of course, to you and I, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the unlikely candidates. 
Verse 22, and the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and there's still room. Then the master said to his servant, go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. So not only are the unlikely candidates in Israel going to be invited, but those from afar off, foreigners, are going to be invited as well. Why? That my house may be filled. And we see in this an echo of what Paul wrote in Romans 11.25, I put it on your outline, where he tells us that because the Jews rejected Jesus, a temporary spiritual blindness has fallen upon them. Check out what Paul said. He said, for I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. So he says, I don't want you to be ignorant about how this works and become brilliant in your own mind and come up with your own theory. So Paul's saying, let me tell you how it is that blindness in part has happened to Israel. So it's happened. It's been put on there by God as a consequence for them rejecting Jesus. And then underline the rest of this verse, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Until. There's no way you can read that verse and not conclude that the blindness is temporary. It has an expiration date. And that blindness will be lifted when, quote, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So what Jesus has just taught tells us that there is a number, there's a number of people, a number of Gentiles where the master of the house, the father, is going to say, that's it. The house is full. The house is full. And Paul tells us in Romans, there are a specific number of non-Jews, Gentiles, who will be saved. He calls that number the fullness of the Gentiles. And God the Father is the only one who knows that number. That number will be reached near the end of the great tribulation because there's going to be some Gentiles who are going to become believers through and in the tribulation. When that number is reached towards the end of those seven years, Israel's eyes will be open to recognize that Jesus was and is the Messiah they've been waiting for and Israel will be saved. But at this moment in time, Jesus is sharing a parable to reveal that because the Jews did not respond to his father's invitation, the invitation is going to be extended to the Gentiles. So write this down. After being rejected by the Jews, the gospel was extended to the Gentiles. After being rejected by the Jews, the gospel was extended to the Gentiles. Then in verse 24, Jesus says, how to win over folks at a party, man. For I say to you, that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. Clearly things get very, very awkward at this point because in the very next verse, Jesus is leaving the party. There's no follow-up question. Verse 25, now great multitudes went with him. There was a crowd that followed him as he came out of the house. And he turned and said to them. So at this point, the crowd is most likely talking to themselves and saying, yeah, he sure showed those hypocrites. He told those Pharisees. But now Jesus is going to address this crowd and he's going to deal with the fact that even though they're following him, they're not really following him. You see, they like being around him. They like the things that he has to say and they like it when he exposes hypocrisy in the church and puts them in their place. They're drawn to him as a person. They're amazed by the miracles. They're fascinated by his teachings, but they're not his disciples. They're not really following him. They haven't crossed that line. So Jesus is going to explain, this is what it means to be my disciple. Verse 26, if anyone comes to me 
and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. It's a weird verse, because if you're hearing this, you're probably thinking, I thought God was love. But just hang with me, because the explanation is very, very straightforward, because we can look at the rest of the Bible, and the Bible is full of commands like honor your mother and father. This is the first commandment with a promise that you might have long life. So it can't mean exactly what it says because it runs contrary to the rest of the gospel. And what you find as you dig deeper into the original language is that this is a style, a manner of speaking at that time. And the crux of the idea is this. If I said to you, I'm standing in the position of neutral, how much do you love ice cream? And I said, oh man, like go all the way to over here. I love ice cream more than anything. But then you stopped and you said, you know, but that's an insufficient description because this gap is not big enough. Not only do I love ice cream more than anything, but every other food compared to ice cream, I hate it. That's how big the gulf is. That's how much I love ice cream. I've gone as far over here as I can to the side of loving it. The only way to make this gap bigger is to push this other stuff further over here. So compared to ice cream, I hate all other food. That's the point, that's the verbiage Jesus is using, if that makes sense. He's saying, compared to your love and affection and devotion for me, you have to hate everything else. He's not actually saying, hate it, treat it with contempt, but he's saying that's how great the gulf should be. As far as it can be, they can't even be on the same scale. You have to love me so much more than all of those things. So basically, I put it on your outline. The easiest way to understand this verse is to understand that the word hate is used to mean love me infinitely more than. So the verse can read, if anyone comes to me and does not love me infinitely more than his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and also his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He cannot be my disciple. Jesus is saying, I can't be in competition with anything. Even your husband or wife, your family, your kids, there's no competition for me. That's the first thing he's saying. That's what it means to be my disciple. That's the standard of devotion that we're talking about. Verse 27, he says, and whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The phrase come after me just means follow me. So Jesus is saying, whoever does not bear his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So what does it mean to bear your cross? And keep this in mind, because this is interesting. We read this and we're like, oh, I totally get the metaphor. But Jesus is saying this before he's crucified. Remember that nobody expects him to be crucified. Nobody believes that's going to happen. It's not a thought on anybody's mind, other than the Pharisees who would like to kill him. But his disciples aren't expecting that that's how this is gonna go down. To their ears, this would be like me saying, grab a noose, you know, the kind you use to hang yourself from a tree? Grab one of those and follow me. Everybody would have understood by just the mention of the cross that a cross is only used for one thing, dying. And if you're carrying a cross, it only means one thing. You're on your way to die. That's what it means. And they all understood that. So when Jesus says this, this is very strange to their ears. Because if you're a rabbi teaching your standards, they're used to things like, if you're going to be my disciple, you must meditate on the Torah for eight hours a day. And Jesus is saying stuff like, pack yourself a noose because you're gonna die. 
That's his pitch. So they all understand it's a reference to something dying. And Jesus references the phrase, bear his cross, three other times in the gospel. And each of those three other times, he adds the phrase, deny himself. In Luke 9, we have probably the most complete version of this phrase. Jesus says, it should be on your outlines, if anyone desires to come after me, let him, underline, deny himself and take up his cross, underline, daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus is saying very clearly, if you're going to be my disciple, it's going to mean denying yourself, putting the agenda of God ahead of our own agenda, putting the desires of God ahead of our own desires, putting God's definition of success ahead of our definition of success. Quite literally, it means we're going to die to ourselves and live for Jesus instead. So note that Jesus says bear his cross. In other places he's gonna talk about taking up your cross. The idea is that it's your choice to do this. This is something you're going to do willingly because the model is who? The model is Jesus laying down his life, taking up his cross willingly. It was his choice as we spoke about a few weeks ago and he gives us the choice to take up our cross or not. And while we're here, I just need to clear something up because as Christians, we love the phrase, bear your cross. And often we say, I'm going to bear my cross or it's my cross to bear about things that we have no choice in. You know, a sickness that happens to us or some circumstance beyond our control, we'll say, I guess it's just my cross to bear. But in the Bible, that phrase is always speaking about something you do willingly something you do voluntarily, not something that happens to you. It's your choice and it always has to do with discipleship. And then we also see that Jesus makes it clear that being a disciple means it's our goal to live that way daily. Discipleship is not a part-time employee position. It's a daily lifestyle and this is really what the concept of lordship is all about. Lordship is just the term used to describe a person who has come to the place where Jesus is the master of their life, the Lord of their life. That's what Lord means, it means master. You're okay with God being the one who sets the agenda for your life. He's the one your desires bow to. You know, we all have a Lord, we all have a master, we all have a voice or an urge or a thing and when it pops its head up and tells us to do something, we bow down to it most of the time. We all have a Lord whether it's an addiction, a desire, or God himself. We all have a Lord. So write this down. Being a disciple of Jesus means putting our will to death and embracing the will of God on a daily basis. Putting our will to death and embracing the will of God on a daily basis. I love how upfront Jesus always is about the cost, the sacrifice, and the rewards of following him. He doesn't say, Take up your travel pillow and follow me. This is gonna be a fluffy, easy, wonderful thing. He says, take up your cross and follow me. And of course, nobody had any idea how literally Jesus would do that in honestly just a few days. If it costs you friends, if it costs you family, if it costs you employment, social acceptance, money, whatever it costs, the disciple of Jesus is willing to pay that price. Jesus uses the imagery of carrying our cross because it connects us with his life, his example. The single biggest concept of being a disciple is this. This is the whole concept of Christian discipleship. Write this down. 
being a disciple of Jesus means his life becomes the pattern for my life. His life becomes the pattern for my life. That's what a disciple does. That's what an apprentice does. He studies how the master lives, how the master does things, and he does his best to do what the master has done, to live as the master lives. Jesus is our master if we're going to be his disciples. So he becomes the pattern for our lives. Only after his death and resurrection would his disciples have realized that when Jesus talked about being a servant, laying down your life, carrying your cross, he was asking them to live their lives the same way he lived his life. The will of his Father above everything else. That's the mindset that Jesus modeled for us. And if we're going to try and live like Jesus lived, then we're going to need to have a cross around. Because Galatians 5.24 tells us this on your outlines as well. Those who are Christ's have, and then underlying crucified, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The picture here is that we take all our fleshly desires, those lusts and those urges that we know aren't from God. They're just what our sin nature wants to do. We take those passions and desires and we crucify them. We put them to death because that's what Jesus did. In the Garden of Gethsemane, do you remember? The night he was to be betrayed and arrested, the Bible tells us that Jesus became, quote, sorrowful and deeply distressed. And then it says that he fell on his face and prayed saying, oh my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. When you understand what that cup was, you understand why. You see that cup is the cup of his father's wrath. All the wrath, all the judgment, all the justice that should have been dished out on you and me for rejecting God and spitting in his face by sinning over and over and over again. All that was stored up in this cup that Jesus is talking about and it was about to be poured out on Jesus by his own father. It's a terrible thing, it's a dreadful thing. And Jesus was dreading it, he was dreading it. What does it mean to crucify the passions and desires of the flesh? This is the example, Jesus in the garden making it clear that the passions and desires of his flesh were to not be crucified like any rational, reasonable human. That's not what he wanted to do. That's not what his flesh wanted to do. So listen to what he says, though, after acknowledging, Father, I don't want to do this. Then he prays. This is how he ends his prayer. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Not as I will, but as you will. See, in that moment where Jesus' passions and desires are strong and overwhelming, he lifts up the will of his Father above his own will and comes underneath the will of the Father. He crucifies his passions and desires in the garden long before he's crucified on the hill of Golgotha. He's our model, he's our example. Make a note of this, being a disciple of Jesus means being willing to crucify the desires of the flesh. Being willing to crucify the desires of the flesh. And I wanna be real here and just acknowledge that this is rarely something you can just decide to do. In other words, I wish I could just say, all right, how many of you wanna crucify your flesh and desires and let's be done with that, just raise your hand. 
I, I wish we could do that. And then we could check that box. Well, I did that on uh, May 25th, 2016. I crucified the flesh. It was done. It was a great Sunday. That would be wonderful. But it doesn't generally work that way. What this means is firstly agreeing with God that the desires of your flesh are contrary to the will of God. This is the first step, is just beginning by saying, God, I recognize that my flesh, my sin nature wants things that are contrary to your word. It wants things that are sinful, and God, I agree with you that those things are sinful. You see, the problem is not that we need to be perfect. The great danger to us with sin is that we begin to disagree with God about what he calls sin. And so you're never going to gain victory over sin when you won't even agree with God that what you're struggling with is sin. Everybody's going to struggle with sin. But the disciple has to agree with God that, yeah, it's sin that I'm struggling with. It doesn't have some other name. It's sin. And then the second step is determining to fight every day to put those fleshly desires to death because they're like a monster in a horror movie. You've all seen the movie, right? Where the the small group of friends, you know, the other seven have all been killed already and there's just the the few left and they have the big face off with the monster and they kill the monster and then they do the stupidest thing ever which is they turn their back on the monster so that the camera can let you see them face on with the monster behind them and they usually say something to the effect of, thank God that's over. What's happening in the background? We all know it, right? Monster stands up like one more time. Ah! Didn't see that coming even though it's happened in every horror movie ever. That's what our fleshly desires are like. You you finally think you're done with some sin, with some urge, and, and, and there it is. Rising from the dead again tomorrow morning. Back from the dead like a zombie. That's why carrying a cross is handy because you're gonna need it. Every day you're going to need to put fleshly desires to death one more time. Have you figured out yet that every single day some emotion, some urge, some desire is going to rear its ugly head and you're going to need to crucify it? I have not yet had a day where I'm like, you know, today was a good day. Why? I didn't sin. Even once. Didn't even have the urge to sin. And he's telling us if we're going to be his disciples, we have to be willing to agree with God that these things are sin and we have to be willing to battle them every single day. We have to make it our goal to do whatever it takes to put God's desires above our desires. Verse 28, for which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, underline count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he's laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Again, here Jesus is being as upfront as possible about the cost of following him. And the imagery he's using is based on the fact that this was an agricultural society at this time. So most people would live in towns, cities, and villages. But the most basic way to make an income was to get a piece of land, to work that land, plant crops, harvest crops, and sell those crops. But the closer it got to harvest time, you would have some challenges. You would have 
thieves who would want to come in and harvest and steal your crops before you harvested them. Or if you had an enemy, he might go in and sow weeds in your field. So the solution was get some funds together and build a tower. You can start with one story, then you got somewhere cool to sleep at night, but you can begin to look over your whole field and one person can oversee a lot of square miles and keep it safe from anyone trying to steal from you or sabotage you. And if you can go up a story or two, hey, you're in great shape. But apparently, there were these towers all over the place that were half finished. And people would look on because they would stand as a monument to the business incompetence of the man who had set out to build the tower and had basically said, oh, I've got enough to build it. And people would laugh because they would say, you can't even count, apparently. This is how much a brick costs. This is how many bricks you need. This is what the project's gonna cost. And you couldn't even get that right. You're a terrible businessman. That was the idea and people would mock him, you know, walk by, when are you gonna finish that tower? Any day now, right? We've all seen this before, where you, you go past a house that's half built and it just stops and you wonder like, what happened? And you see some notice a few months later that the place is in foreclosure. So Jesus is saying, don't be like that with me. Count the cost of following me before you begin following me. He's saying, I'm laying it all out for you right now. This is what it means to be my disciple. Take the time to consider this, the cost and the rewards. There's no reason for you to be surprised because Jesus is being upfront here. But my personal speculation is that what's in view here is not Jesus really talking about you being embarrassed. But I think what's really in view here is the reputation of Jesus in the church being damaged by us because if we claim to be his disciples, but live as though we're not, giving into our fleshly desires without a fight, complaining and quitting every time life gets difficult. I think that's what people laugh at. I think that's what people mock when we claim to be disciples of Jesus, but it makes no difference in our lives at all. And they meet Christians and they begin to think, this is just a social club, it's a hobby. It's not something that makes any real difference in your life. And like a half-built tower, it's, it's obvious to everyone around that Christians haven't really counted the cost. They're not really invested. And it's the reputation of Jesus in the church that suffers. Jesus isn't yelling and ranting. He's just saying, count the cost. Here's all the information you need to make an informed decision. And I know this is heavy stuff, but it's what Jesus told those who wanted to be his disciples. It's the truth. The offer Jesus makes is following me is gonna be difficult. It might even cost you your earthly life. But he unapologetically says, I'm worth it. I'm worth it. I'm the best way to live in this life and I'm the only way to heaven in the next life. Yes, it's hard, but I'm worth it. That's the offer. And I promise that when you've been following Jesus as a disciple for even a short time, even a few years, you'll never say, man, I look back with regret on the day I decided to really become a disciple of Jesus. You've never met a disciple of Jesus who said that and you never will. Verse 31, or what king going to make a war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not underline forsake all that he has, forsake all that he has, cannot be my disciple. He, you just can't, it's an impossibility. 
Please note that Jesus is not saying whoever of you does not sell everything he has cannot be my disciple. That's not what he says. The language and concept here is the same as when he was talking about hating your mother and father. You remember that? So the idea is that compared to the love you have for Jesus, all the other stuff, your house, your home, your career, all the other stuff, you have to hate it by comparison. That's how big the gap has to be with all the stuff that you have. Quite simply, you can make a note of this. Being a disciple of Jesus means nothing competes with our love for and loyalty to him. Nothing competes with our love for and loyalty to him. If we're faced with a choice between obeying Jesus, following Jesus, or losing anything or anyone else, the decision has to have been made in advance. I decided to be a disciple of Jesus. This decision is already made. That's what Jesus is saying when he talks about counting the cost and forsaking everything else. He's saying that the decision to be his disciple is the decision in advance to choose Jesus over everything and everyone else. It's a decision made in advance. And Jesus is asking them and us, are you prepared to do that? Are you prepared to do that? Heavy but honest. Heavy but worth it. Easy to teach but hard to do. Hard to do. And the truth is that Jesus has every right to ask for this level of commitment from us. As the word tells us, he loved us first. He died for us before we were even born. He took our place under the wrath of the Father. Knowing that none of us, none of us can respond with the logic of, that's a pretty serious commitment, Jesus. Do you know what you're asking? We can't do that. Because his body and his blood, the elements of communion, testify to what he's already done for us. And if he loves us, if he truly loves us, he's going to call us to live and show us how to live in the way that will most greatly benefit us. And that's what he's doing here. That's what he's doing. He's saying this is the way of living that will most benefit you in this life and the next. This is the best way to live. And that's the most loving thing Jesus could do. The reason I believe Jesus is talking about the reputation of the church and his reputation being embarrassed when we don't count the cost is because of what Jesus says here in verse 34. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears, let him hear. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says something similar, but he makes it a bit clearer that he's talking about believers because Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. The general view, the view that most biblical scholars hold is that what is in view here is not the issue of salvation, it's the issue of believers versus disciples. You see, the difference between believers and disciples is not salvation, it's rewards. It's rewards. There may not be any rewards in heaven for those who simply believe but never do anything with their faith. But there will be rewards for those who are disciples, who are willing to follow Jesus at a cost and at a price. And in this illustration, salt is a believer. And the point Jesus is making is that when a believer doesn't live as a disciple, they're like salt that has lost its flavor. You know, technically it's still salt. It's still salt, still a believer, but it's useless. It's good for nothing. 
Make a note of this. Here's what's going on. If Satan can't have your spirit, his next goal is to make you completely ineffective. If Satan can't have your spirit, if you belong to Jesus, his next priority, his next goal is just to make you completely ineffective. Don't have an impact on anybody or anything. That's what Jesus is talking about. You may be saved, but you're not really of any use to the kingdom of God. You haven't joined the mission. Not on board with what God is doing on the earth. You're just counting down the days till you get to heaven. This is the believer who's gonna be in heaven, but probably won't receive any rewards. They wanted Jesus as their savior, but not as their Lord, not as their master. And I'm gonna wrap up with this very, very difficult truth that I wanna share as honestly as I can, because I would be remiss if I didn't share this. If you find yourself in the place where you're a believer, you'd say, yeah, I'm, I'm a believer, but you would also say, I, I don't really think I'm a disciple. I'm a disciple. If that's how you would categorize yourself, and you've been a believer for a few years, and you're okay with that. You're okay saying I'm a believer but not a disciple. You may need to really examine your faith a little bit more deeply because while it may be true that you can be a believer but not a disciple, it's also true that the Bible says there are gonna be many people who thought they were believers who found out they really weren't. Some of you will remember what Jesus says to the Laodicean church, the last days church, the church era we're living in. In Revelation three, he says, I know your works, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were hot or cold. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now, without much debate, surprisingly, Bible scholars generally agree that when Jesus puts someone in the category of I will vomit you out of my mouth, they're probably not saved. There's generally a broad consensus and agreement about that. And if you read about this church, if you read the whole letter to the Laodicean church in Revelation 3, it's clear that their problem was they thought they were saved. They thought they were blessed by God, but they, they weren't even saved. If your devotion and commitment is the same as theirs, lukewarm, I wouldn't be showing you love as a pastor if I didn't tell you, you need to take the time to seriously examine your faith. Seriously examine your faith. Yes, you need to be a believer before you become a disciple, but if you've been a believer for a while and you have no interest in growing into a disciple, in moving in that direction, that may be serious cause for concern. Can you believe in Jesus as your savior, but not your Lord? Can you say, yes, I'll take the salvation, but I'm not gonna do anything you ask me to do? That's a big, big question. And I wanna encourage all of us to wrestle with that question, to wrestle with it. And I encourage all of us to make sure that we are sure that we're saved. I'm sure that I'm saved. Each of us needs to be sure. This is the stuff Paul is talking about when he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, take it seriously. Take it seriously, be honest with yourself. We're not saved by anything we do, but the things we do reveal whether or not we're saved. The difference between a believer and a disciple is not salvation, but rewards. Paul put it this way, as he examined his own life toward the end of his life, Paul said, I fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Finally, 
There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved or who have longed for his appearing. Paul says, I fought the fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. He's looking forward to a reward because of what he did. He kept the faith. He finished the race. And it can get very, very uncomfortable when the Bible begins talking about accountability. And I get that. A lot of pastors have figured out, you don't make people happy by talking about accountability. You make people happy by talking about the unconditional love of God and just keep it there, keep it happy. But Jesus has made it very clear in today's text that being his disciple has certain conditions. And so if we say, well man, how how can you quantify what it means to be a disciple? Luke 14, Jesus has quantified it. He said this, This is what it means to be my disciple. It means doing certain things and not doing other things. In the Gospel of John, Jesus does the same thing. He adds a condition to discipleship. He says, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Or John 13, 35, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another, if. There are conditions, and he's laid them out as clearly as he can for us so that none of us can say, well, I I didn't know, I didn't understand. My prayer is that we would recognize how priceless Jesus is, and our first response would be, whatever it costs, whatever it takes, I'm in. I pray that you and I would, would all reach the place where we say yes to Jesus even before examining the conditions, that instead of opening the scriptures to say, man, I need to read Luke 14 again to see if I'm going to do this, that we would instead say, no, whatever it is, I'm, I'm in. I need to read Luke 14 again so that I can find out what it is Jesus wants me to do, how he wants me to live. But I'm not reading this thing to weigh whether or not I'm in. I'm in, whatever it costs. I pray that we all get to that place. I'm so thankful that Jesus had made this clear in his word because I want to be his disciple. I want to be his disciple more than any other title in life that I could ever have. That's the one I want. I want to know that when the Lord looks at me, he says, he's my disciple. And I pray the same is true for you. Let me say this in conclusion to revisit a few things that came up today. What an impact it would have if we all decided that we were going to Invest in some people who we realize may not be able to do anything for us right now. It could be a a text message, a Facebook message, a conversation, a coffee, a lunch, a ride to and from small group and, and caring enough just to ask, how are you doing? When you know that they're dying for someone to ask that, but in your flesh you don't want to because you're like, I really don't want to hear how they're doing. But you ask anyway because you want to show them the love of Christ. And again, I understand that that we can't do that all the time for everybody, but perhaps some of us have poured into other people, realized we need to just take a break, like Jesus did, and get recharged, but we never really got around to going back and doing it again for anybody else. Maybe what we need to do today is just begin to commit again. Man, I'm going to invest in some people who, who can't do anything for me right now. Secondly, I think Jesus would remind us that there's always going to be excuses for not taking him up on his invitation to be his disciple. There'll always be places to go, people to meet, things to do. There'll always be a wife. There'll always be a husband. There'll always be kids. 
But if we let those things keep us from the wedding feast, we're going to be the ones missing out. We're going to be the ones missing out. We'll miss out on miracles and God stories in this life and eternal rewards in the next life. And if you don't think that you'll care about rewards in heaven, if you're thinking, no, man, all I need to do is get to heaven and heaven will be great. I don't care about that reward stuff. You'll care when you're there. I promise. You'll care when you're there. There are some pastors who even believe that when Jesus says, I'm going to wipe away every tear, what he's talking about is the tears of those who are there in his kingdom but are overcome with regret because they're looking at their earthly lives and saying, I wasted my life. I'm here, I'm saved, but I I wasted my life. I didn't live for God, I lived for a mortgage payment. That was my God. Or I lived for my kids. I lived for my career. And they're overcome with regret. And I don't share that to condemn, I share that because I don't want that day, the day rewards are handed out in the presence of God, I don't want that day to be the greatest day of regret in your life. When you look back and say, man, I wish I had done things differently. I wish I'd said yes to being a disciple of Jesus. Don't waste your life. Thirdly, I'd say, be sure of your salvation. Be sure of your salvation. Don't be the one who was invited but had an excuse Don't be the one who says, yeah, I'm a believer and I'm good with that. I'm not really interested in being a disciple. Be sure of your salvation. And then lastly, I'd say this. Being a disciple of Jesus is not about perfection. None of us who desires to be a disciple of Jesus is going to do all those things perfectly. None of us. That's not the issue. The issue is, do we agree with God about what we should do? Do we read Luke 14 and say, I agree That when I look at Jesus, he is worth all that. He deserves all that. He deserves to be my highest priority. He deserves to have no competition. He deserves to get an immediate yes from me, no matter what the cost is. The issue is, do we agree with Luke 14? Yes, that's describing the kind of worship, the kind of life that Jesus deserves in response to the way he's loved me. The issue is, do we agree with him? And then the second issue is, Will we commit to live that way? Just to do our best to live that way, to get up every day and when those sinful urges come up, to do our best to put them to death. When we mess up to say, that, that's not who I wanna be, that's not what I wanna do. God, I agree, that sin, would you forgive me? Thank you that you let me try again. It's not about perfection. It's about agreeing with God about what he deserves from us, the response he deserves, what he deserves us to do and what he deserves us to forsake for him and agree that, yes, God, you're worthy. You deserve that. And I'm on board for all of that. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Just this big issue of discipleship, taking the time to examine ourselves and ask, am I living as a disciple of Jesus? I think the Holy Spirit would first ask, are we fooling ourselves about what it means to be a disciple? Are we telling ourselves, I'm all in, but... When Jesus gets very specific, we get uncomfortable because we begin to realize that that's not what my life looks like. But I want it to. I want it to. If that's you, I want to encourage you to spend this coming time in worship, really worshiping God from the angle of God, you're worth it. You deserve everything from me. That's what I want my life to look like from now on. I want to live as your disciple. I want to live as your disciple. 
if you're here and you've been a believer for a while, but you have no interest in being a disciple, I, I pray and believe that the Holy Spirit is just waking a desire within you to love Jesus and serve Jesus in a deeper way. And I want to invite you to do that. I want to encourage you to do that. Take your faith to the next level. Don't worry about being perfect. It's just agreeing that Jesus is worth it. That's where we start. When we look at Jesus, the level of commitment he's asking from us tends to just get smaller and smaller because of how great and glorious what he has done for us is. And we suddenly realize that, Jesus, this is, this is the least I could do. What you're describing, that's it's the least I could do. It's the only logical response. So look to the cross and just commit again to be his disciple, to be his disciple. Ask the Lord to speak to you and reveal to you if there's anything that he wants to say to you personally today. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.